Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording the show on Monday, March 15th, 2021. If you listen regularly to this podcast, you know that Drew and I don't normally record on Mondays, but today's a special day, the day that the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences announces their nominees for this year's Oscar. Downside is they do this on East Coast time, so the morning television shows can grab it, So, and they typically do it in the 8.30 segment of you know, the last half hour, which means that poor Drew, who's on the West Coast, when exactly did you get up this morning? About 5.15. So oh, yeah, how did Nova handle this? Uh, Nova <laughs> is Nova is still in bed with my wife, so oh, you know, yeah, okay, yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> well, both smart mammals, right there. Yes, yes. Okay, with the exception of one press release that that showed up on my mail from Netflix, I have no idea who got nominated. Okay, so Drew's gonna gonna fill us in here. So, any surprises or? Well, I mean, I. I, as I told you earlier, I thought mm. that Soul was going to pull off a Best Picture nomination, and it did not. Mm. Okay. Um, okay. So I also thought it was maybe going to uh, get a Best Original Screenplay nomination. It did not. Mm. So, uh, yeah, no animated features in Best Picture. Um, the Best Animated Feature nominations are what we probably thought they were going to be. Uh, it is Over the Moon, uh, Onward. Sean the Sheep, the movie Farmageddon, which I was happy to see, uh, Soul, okay. mm-hmm. and Wolfwalkers. So pretty much what we expected, right? Okay. I mean, no disrespect to Sean the Sheep. If I were picking an Ardman thing to put forward, I don't know if I would have put forward that one. But beyond that, that's a relatively good solid list. Yeah. And then for uh, Animated Short, we've got Burrow, which I, I know we both loved. Genius Loki, If Anything Happens, I Love You, Opera, and Yes People. So I've got some catching up to do on that category, but... No to Jared? No to Jared, but we tried, Jim. We tried. Oh, I know, no. I'm, I I'm sorry. That's a gross error on the Academy's part. That's a charming shirt. That's a wonderful little film. That really deserves some recognition. I mean, don't get me wrong, Burroughs cute, but... Yeah. It's certainly no to Jared. Ugh. Ugh. I'm not happy, Drew. <laughs> I know. Well, we did what we could, Jim. We did what we could. And then uh, Soul also got nominated for Best Score, which I think was pretty mm-hmm. much a lock okay. there. And also okay. Best Sound, uh, right. which is the new All collapsed right. Oscar category for, yeah. And given, you know, in, in today's world of effects and, and that sort of thing, you know, I mean, face it, you know, most effects films really are animated features. Were, were any interesting nods there? or uh, the, the effects category is interesting. Yeah, we've got mm-hmm. Love and Monsters, which I really mm-hmm. loved. Uh, the Midnight Sky, Mulan. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the One and Only Ivan, and Tenet. So kind of an interesting group. Really? I thought I thought Soul might, might permeate there too, but, but mm-hmm. it did not. Yeah. But, what the One and Only Ivan? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. So, All right. Well. That almost makes up for no to Jared. Yeah. So I, yeah. Again, I, I 
really want to slap a few members of the academy. <laughs> okay, that's a really for real news. I mean, like that broke just within the hour there, folks. Right. But let's get to the rest of the news of the week. News portion of today's show is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner, the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. For a worry-free travel experience, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. Okay, quick pivot to this past weekend's box office. Second weekend that Raya and the Last Dragon was out in theaters, sold 5.5 million worth of tickets. That's a 35% drop in business since its opening weekend. 562 million in ticket sales overall worldwide. LA is the number one movie market in the country. And the theaters that haven't uh, haven't opened up, they're, they're due to open up this coming weekend, right? Yeah, some of them are. Some of them haven't really laid out. the. They can. They can. That's the the important thing. But yeah, I think um, even in Burbank, there were a couple of theaters open this weekend with with Raya playing. So, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, because they were saying, you know, I mean, it's another one of these walk before you can run scenarios. Mm-hmm. I guess they open at twenty five percent capacity. But yeah, with the number one movie market in the country still in the process of opening, uh, coupled with those two theater chains, or excuse me, three, uh, Cinemark, Harkins, and I'm blanking the other one, and they're not deliberately not showing this Walt Disney Animation Studios production because of the whole premium access thing. Speaking of which, though, I, from what I'm hearing from Disney, they are very pleased with how they're doing with that $30 upcharge for with Disney Spring, uh, excuse me, <laughs> Disney Plus subscribers. They're also, I guess, pleased that inside of 16 months, they now have 100 million yeah. subscribers, or at least that's what they were saying at the shareholders meeting last week. Yeah, I was, I was also going to say that a 35% drop-off week to week is actually amazing for mm-hmm. a traditional theatrical release. That right? is that is definitely worth pointing out. Yes, that compared to what other films who experienced a 60% drop-off, that, that's great. Speaking of the shareholders meeting, Bob Chapek did say that both Marvel's Black Widow, which is supposed to arrive in theaters in May 7th, and Corolla, which arrives three weeks later on May 28th, will have theatrical releases that, you know, he's he's planning on that. Speaking of Corolla, though, did you see the new trailer ad that dropped last night? I, I think yeah. With the Grammys? Yeah, it, it felt very much like the other ad. I mean, they said it was new, but I was like, haven't we seen this trailer before? <laughs> you know, I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> couple new shots in there and you call it new yeah there we go that's how they break from us wait a minute one little one new image okay by the way you know on our last show i had not watched ray and the dragon uh finally did really enjoyed it did want to ask drew did you catch at the very tail end of the credits that special message from the crew no i didn't i haven't watched i haven't watched it again yet but yeah go ahead tell tell me what it was at The making of this movie from over 400 individual homes was unprecedented and and relied entirely on the talent, ingenuity, and dedication of everyone at Walt Disney Animation Studios. The filmmakers would like to thank them for their tireless work, good humor, and most of all, patience with our inability to properly use the internet. And then in parentheses, it says, dude, you're still on mute, (laughs) which given my mad internet skills, I understand entirely. Just today, you know, Drew was like a gym audio, put on the audio. (laughs) 
We're doing a show. We have to record it. Uh, also, worth noting that we're recording this on the 15th and tomorrow, March 16th, the Art of Book for Rhea and the Last Dragon comes out. This is from Chronicle Books, and I'll mangle this name. Can yeah, you well, help me? you know, you know how I know her is just Coleco because she oh. she's a part of Amy Astley's um, mm-hmm. PR team. Oh, and okay. she got to write this book, and so it was so fun. You know, I've seen her and and chatted mm-hmm. with her. Over the years at various press events and every time I'm at mm-hmm. the animation studio. Mm-hmm. So Coleco Hurley, who is mm-hmm. absolutely fabulous, got to co-write this book. And so she and I have been talking about this over the last year, sort of as I was finishing up my art of book. She was working on mm-hmm. her art of book. So it was there. it was a lot of fun. Yeah. You went up and did your interviews for Onward. Was that one day or two days? It was two days uh, about, yeah, mm-hmm. it was about this time... God, it was before Toy Story 4, which was, I guess, 2019. So Mm -hmm. around this time, 2019. So, yeah, it was was a whirlwind. But I think this new making of book is absolutely fabulous. No, no, no. Don't get me wrong. 160 pages of gold. I I think they they did a great job. And there's this wonderful quote from director Don Hall about the the core of the story has always been Rhea and uh, Sisu. The interplay between the two personalities, one's a warrior with trust issues and the other one's a benevolent dragon who trusts deeply. So that's the source of not only of the film's humor, but also its emotion. And you did much the same thing with the Onward book, is that taking things that you're looking at in the movie and going, now, wait a minute, there's there's significance there. You know, to pay attention right. to this. You know, they made these deliberate choices. Like Rhea, as an adult warrior, uh, again, a character with trust issues. So when we first meet her, she's got she's cloaked in this giant cape. She's got a big hat. As John Ripper explains, those are her protective layers. That those are items we could peel off the character she evolved over the course of the film. Whereas Sisu, I mean, the stuff that was kind of giving away who she was. Yet her her blue coloring was supposed to. She's a water dragon. Likewise, they were talking about how. This was a character who had to work as a biped and a quadruped. And at the same time, I think we were just talking on the last show about Roger Deakins, right? How right. Gore Vabinsky, yep. how he talked about how important it was to have Roger Deakins on. And, and for example, with, with Rhea, uh, you know, in Rhea and the Last Dragon, the way they use cinematography to, to reinforce the story points, when they were shooting Rhea, they deliberately, you know... It, as animators would replicate the use of a wide lens with deep focus and a narrow ca- uh, color palette. Whereas Sisu, because she's a trusting character, you could use a long lens, go shallow focus and use a broader color palette. Uh, what about you, Drew? I mean, you, you read the, the same book. Was there anything that leaped out at you or? Well, I just love seeing all the design work from, I mean, what sucks about Rhea is that almost all of the production designers are no longer at Disney. So I really relished seeing some of the last work that Helen Chen mm-hmm. and Amy Thompson, mm-hmm. and who we're going to talk about later in the show, and also Corey Loftus got to do. And Corey's uh, character designs are obviously absolutely jaw-dropping. His work on Zootopia and Ralph mm-hmm. Breaks the Internet is just astounding. And it was so great to see his, like, his ideas for the Droon did you see that oh. page of all of his? Uh, it was like, yeah. oh my god! You know, some this could fill five Guillermo del Toro movies. Absolutely. In fact, there was that one image, I guess, in the earlier 
iteration of the film where Rhea was known as the Dragon Blade and she was going around the country supposedly deliberately killing off the Droon. And this was before they decided to go with an impersonal ethereal take right. on the Droon. Yeah, there's a monster that's straight out of uh, Guillermo del Toro. You yeah. Know, just uh, the nightmare fuel. Uh, you mentioned Helen Chen uh, uh, just a second ago. Uh, she talked about Kumandro was actually made up of five lands, uh, fang, heart, tail, talon, and spine. She talked about how sometimes it felt like we were making five movies instead of one. But at the same time, there's this great story uh, from Paul Briggs about Talon, where you know he talked about, you know, really, that, that's kind of got inspired by Mos Eisley uh, from the original Star Wars. You know, you think about it, it's, it's a trade place, it's a watering hole filled with scum and villainy, including villainous little babies. Right. Uh, oh, by the way, that that's the uh, Ongies? Is that how we pronounce the it? The Ongies, I think? Yeah. Ongies. Yeah. <laughs> what I love, you know, and again, you, you learn these things as you're reading the Art of Rhea book, and they, they were designed to be part monkey, part catfish, uh, basically mochi balls with fur. <laughs> They're amazing, Jim. They're they are. Amazing. They are. But yeah, that overall, a great read. There's the great story that Keen Yun tells about the, what, a Dang Hu, the, the chief of Talon, uh, who evidently is inspired by her immigrant grandmother. And so the idea is you have this this tiny woman who looks you know small and sweet, but scratch the surface, she's all fire. Strong personality who isn't intimidated by anyone, a true Vietnamese matriarch. I would say if you've spent the $30 to see Rhea and the Last Dragon, it's worth laying down another 30 to get your hands on this book. You you will learn so much about this movie and more to the point will, you know, really, really appreciate all of the work and the craft of of those over 400 artists at Disney who couldn't figure out how to turn on the audio on their laptop. Yes, so. I agree. It's it's really great. We pivot now. Did you see where Central Park has been uh, renewed for, you know, a third season? Yes, I cannot wait. I mean, I just want the second season, Jim. Just give me the second season. That's what I well, want. Well, again, we, we also have a start date for that. We have June 25th. But Lauren Bouchard, the creative behind this, he tweeted out that, okay, so season two and season three of Central Park means 29 more episodes. And like 115 more songs. So, sorry, Ava, you're probably not going to be seeing your dad all that often <laughs> in, in the weeks ahead. Sounds like Josh Gad is going to be a very busy man. Yes. What about the South Park vaccination special on March 10th? Did you get to watch that? No. How, how was it? Surprisingly good. But at the same time, it was, you know, somebody who's exhausted from being locked indoors for, you know, in fact, that it, it, supposedly it was a year to the day that the lockdown began is when the show debuted on, on Comedy Central. By the way, hugely popular. It was the number one cable telecom cast for 2021 so far this year. They had 1.7 million viewers for the premiere, and over the night they picked up a total of 3.5 million viewers. There were all these throwbacks to earlier South Park episodes, and in fact, at one point... Are you familiar with the underpants gnomes? Yes, of course. <laughs> All right. They, they show up. Wow. At the Walgreen where they're dispensing, you know, the hardest place in, in now in all of South Park to get in. In fact, it has like, you know, Hollywood nightclub security outside with a little red velvet rope. And, and the underpants gnomes show up at one point arguing that they're essential workers because, of course, they're the ones who steal your underpants at night. But there was kind of an exhausted 
feel to it, mm-hmm. sort of echoing all of, of what we're going through. In fact, not to spoil it for folks, but there's actually a, a moment in the show where effectively the four boys that we've known over the course of the, the show, their broship breaks up and, and it's Cartman and uh, Kyle and I'm, I'm blanking the name of the other one, but they, they, they literally have a meeting where they work out the custody schedule for Kenny. <laughs> and there's this wonderful gag through, throughout the show because, you know, of course, it's everybody over 60 who's initially gotten the shot. And so you have all of these old people in South Park lording it over the rest of the residents. It's like, ha ha, we got our shot and, you know, we can go out with it masks. And there's this, this gag at the end of the show where finally everyone at South Park is getting their shot. And it's like, okay, old people, back to the retirement home, you know, and, and forcing them off the streets. But. It's worth checking out. It's certainly not as foul as last year's hour-long South Park episode, where we find out the role that Mickey Mouse played in the launch of the, the Wuhan flu. Right. <laughs> but I don't know. I would check it out. Oh, what do we make of the Pepe Le Pew situation? Well, I mean, I think supposedly there was only one draft where he was even in the story prominently. There we go. And... It was last year. It was even it was even before the current director took over. I don't know if you, we all remember that Space Jam 2 had a completely different creative mm-hmm. team for about 3 weeks on the movie. And so this was this was during that version. So mm-hmm. I don't really understand what everyone is bent out of shape about, especially because I don't think Pepe Le Pew is anybody's favorite character. But you have a you have an interesting historical take on Pepe Le Pew, don't you? I guess we should explain to people what the scene was supposed to be. I remember when you first explained about this all Warner Brothers world yeah. together in one movie conceit for this movie. So in this movie, Superman can fly out of Metropolis, go to, to Hogwarts Castle, pick up Harry Potter, and then the two of them can fly to, to Bedrock to have lunch with Fred Flintstone. I mean, it's, it's that kind of movie. Right. And so the scene that was in the film for a while was uh, LeBron James needs information. He ends up at uh, Rick's Cafe from a Warner Brothers 1942 production of Casablanca. And as he walks in, sure enough, it's black and white. And, he, and there, seated at the bar, is Pepe Le Pew, who's putting the moves on, um, I'm blanking the name of the model, Greece? Santo, yeah. Okay. But what happens, you know, again, it's a 2021 movie. He's doing his French lever routine and she grabs him. I think she throws a drink in his face, slaps him and stalks off. And and LeBron actually walks up to Pepe at one point and it's like, dude, you know, it, it's 2021. You, you know, no means no. And I mean, and that's the thing. It, it The way it sounds is this literally was a pop culture warrior joke. The whole reason the scene existed was, you know, th- to sort of do that bit to the effect of, here's Pepe Le Pew doing what he always did, and that doesn't play anymore. But for me, I, I think the thing that's fascinating about Pepe Le Pew is this character only exists because of a grudge match between Chuck Jones and Eddie Seltzer at Warner Brothers Studio. If you go back into Warner Brothers history, uh, Daffy Duck, he didn't burst on the scene fully formed. He was a character that debuted in a, a Porky Pig short, Porky's Duck Hunt, back in April of 37. And, and they went, oh, that's an interesting character. And you know, maybe we can do something with that. 
Same thing with Bugs Bunny. I mean, the very first time we have a Bugs Bunny-like character is actually in the sequel to Porky's Duck Hunt, a short from April of 38, or Porky's Hare Hunt. So we jump ahead to January of 1945. Chuck Jones has done a new short for the studio called Adorable Kitty, and there's a skunk character in this thing. At that time, his name was Henry. He had a wife and two kids. And Chuck finishes the short and brings it to management. And it's just sort of like, I think the skunk character, we could do something with this. But there's a gentleman who's in charge of the studio at this time, Eddie Seltzer. And he hates Chuck Jones for some point. I don't know the reason, but he just flat out hates Chuck Jones. And so it's like, no, there's a stupid idea. No one will like a, a cartoon that's built around just a skunk. And so Chuck is obstinate. So they do three other shorts over the next two years. Fair and Warmer in uh, September of 46, Sentimental Over You in March of 47, and then Odor of the Day in October of 48. And there's, there's a skunk character in them. And each time it's a little bigger, a little funnier. And, but Seltzer's like, don't waste our time trying to launch this new character. You know, you're wasting precious studio research, time and money to, to do this. But then finally, there's a, a, the film put out, uh, November of 49, for sentimental reasons. And this one wins the Academy Award. It's the second only Warner Brothers short to ever win a Best Animated Feature Oscar. And so now Chuck Jones, I've got the, I've got an Academy Award. I've proved my point. We could build a series. I was right. This is a winning character. And Seltzer goes to, now goes to Jones. Well, congratulations. Now, because it won an Academy Award, the studio wants a series of, of movies around your skunk character. And Chuck was like, well, I don't want to do a series. I just wanted to prove to you that I was right and you were wrong. So we got an additional 14 Pepe Le Pew shorts after that from all, all the way up to 62. And in fact, the, the only reason the series ended is that for all intents and purposes, Warner Brothers Studio Animation Studio, at least the theatrical shorts part of things, closed in 63 and that at that point i think they started for farming out the making of theatrical shorts to outfits like uh the patty frilling but we only got peppy Le Pew because chuck jones and eddie seltzer got in a waving contest are we allowed to say waving drew i can't, uh, i forget <laughs> anyway folks animation history can be very very weird sometimes Speaking of which, when we get back from this break, Drew has an amazing story about the film you never got to see, which was a Gargoyles movie. Am I right about a that? A live action Gargoyles movie. Yes. Okay. You, you got to come back for that, folks. So hang on with the ads and we'll be right back. I always associate Gargoyles with Batman the Animated Series. That debuted September of 1992, and the, the original iteration of that show ran till September of 95. But, you know, I mean, it had a great look and really told great stories, and it was going head-to-head -head on, I want to say, the Fox Kids at that time, Fox Kids programming block, against the Disney Afternoon. And yes. Disney was like, okay, so we got Tailspin, we got DuckTales... We need something that can compete with Batman the Animated Series, which is where Gargoyles comes in. Debuts in October of 94, and, you know, a decidedly dark show. I mean, very different, certainly, from DuckTales. 
And Tailspin. Yeah. Well, you re- you remember that the Fox animation block too was mm-hmm. was designed and implemented by a former Disney uh, executive. Which, no, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Uh, yeah. I think it was Bill Mechanic, right? Um, there we go. Yeah. 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 Took from the playbook very well, but they, but it ended up being the sort of downfall of the Disney Afternoon, right? Because of all of the Fox channels which were running the Disney afternoon at the time decided mm-hmm. to run this other programming block but yeah no it was it was very mature and you know the, there there is that famous gun safety episode that sort of like you know is sometimes shown and sometimes not you know and you're right you're right yeah no I I enjoyed it I mean that there were three seasons of a total of 78 episodes it, it was one of these Venn diagram show I mean how many people on that show were members of the cast of Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah. You know, I, I'm Marina Sirtis and Riker. I'm blank. Jonathan oh, Frakes. Yeah. Jonathan Frakes. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, so much of the voice talent, you know, so the, the notion hey, if you're watching Star Trek The Next Generation, you want to come watch Gargoyles. Also, Edward Asner. I mean, it, it had an amazing vocal cast. But if you look at the, the writing staff, I mean, it seemed like they, they would change it out completely each season. Yeah, and the and the third season was like completely different from the, the yeah. first two. And and I think yeah. a lot I think Greg Weissman is sort of the guy that's kind of kept up the yep. the mm-hmm. gargoyles history and he mm-hmm. said he totally disowns the third season. No, I get that. I get that. But the interesting thing is as early as ninety five there was talk based on, you know, this set of characters like ooh we need to do a film with these and not just a, a home premiere. They were talking about a, a live action feature, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure when it started. So the story is that I got this mm-hmm. screenplay off of eBay. And what okay. kind of what kind of sparked this is that a couple of years ago, Rick Baker, who is the mm-hmm. Oscar winning. Yes. Um, yes. yes. He had a he was selling off a lot of his stuff and mm-hmm. he there was a a Goliath maquette that was a part of the sale, which I, now I'm like kicking myself because I looked at the asking price mm-hmm. on it the other day and it was like $800. And I was like, oh my mm-hmm. God, I could have had this amazing thing. But anyway, so there were a set of drawings and also a maquette from this mm-hmm. Gargoyles and it said Disney live action Gargoyle Project 1998. So at least, okay, I had a date. I mm-hmm. had when it was going to happen. And so I found this script from 1998 on eBay mm-hmm. and bought it and it came to me and it is pretty interesting. All I understand from the project because they were looking to make the initial one affordable is supposedly there's only one gargoyle in the story. Am I right? There's uh, only one gargoyle. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, okay. Plow the road. Okay. Yeah, so this we, is a draft right. from 1998 written by Jim Kof, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. was working for Disney a lot. At the time, he wrote the two stakeout movies. The first one, I think, won an Edgar Award for Mm -hmm. him. He wrote, he worked on the initial version of National Treasure, and he was doing stuff like, I believe, Disorganized Crime, which he also wrote and directed, was for Disney. He wrote Mm -hmm. Operation Dumbo Drop. And so he, you know, he was very much in the Disney mix. And this and this script is based on an earlier script, which I don't have, by mm-hmm. Dean Devlin, who is Roland Emmerich's or was Roland Emmerich's sort of co-conspirator. And they did Independence Day and Stargate and all of those movies together. So I'm not mm-hmm. sure how much this follows that version. But mm-hmm. 
one of the interesting things is that during the sort of medieval prologue, the gargoyles are actually humans. Yeah, oh. they sort of make a deal with the devil to mm-hmm. vanquish this evil sorcerer named Morgan, who I am mm-hmm. sort of guessing is kind of a Morgana Le Fay mm-hmm. type character. Okay. And they turn into gargoyles. So mm-hmm. so we we catch up in modern day in New York with a long lost descendant of the human being that that Goliath used to be. And we get some of the same mythology about, you know, it has the gargoyle has to rise above the clouds mm. to become alive. And yeah, so then there's this whole sort of thing where Goliath comes back. He he doesn't speak English in the script, which is also sort of interesting and weird. It's hmm. all sort of Celtic, uh, Gaelic, I guess. And they're trying to stop Morgan, who's come back from the medieval ages, from opening up a portal to hell mm. in modern day New York, which, you know, is very, it seems very Buffy the Vampire Slayer to I, me. I was about to say, you know, the, yeah. the, the Ghostbusters Buffy. Yes, exactly. I need to open a portal. Let me get to Queens. Yes, okay, exactly. So, so right. that's sort of how it happens. There's Morgan's henchmen are these kind of like devious figures that sort of reminded me of, you saw Shazam from a couple of years ago, right, Jim? Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there are yep. these creatures that are like, that symbolize like gluttony and, and all mm-hmm. these things. And, I don't think the script really works that well. It's missing a lot from what made the show so special, but mm-hmm. you you definitely feel the uh, budgetary lim- limitations of having one gargoyle. But then there's scenes where they'll be like flying through New York and destroying mm-hmm. all this property and stuff for seemingly minutes on end. So mm-hmm. I'm not really sure, you know, I don't I don't know how they were going to do that. So you're holding the script from 98, which set in New York, you know, also for destruction. Think about it. Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich, what do they follow up Independence Day with? But Godzilla, which again, set in New York, destroying the city. You know, you got to picture this moment where they're sitting there, you know, with the, you know, at their desk with both of the, you know, script sitting in front of them. And okay, so how are we destroying New York? Yeah, no, I, you, you get that. And, And I don't, I don't think that. Godzilla worked very well either, but no, um, no. In fact, the thing that kills me about Godzilla is it's actually the two gentlemen who wrote the script for Aladdin and the Pirates of the the, the initial trio of Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Yeah, Ted and Elliott and uh, there Terry we go. Garcia, um, yeah. You can actually go online. Their version of the script, which came within inches of being made. I mean, I remember the the trade ads with Godzilla's uh, shadow looming over the Sony lot. It's a great script. It really is. Again, in fact, it's such a great script that somebody went and did a graphic novel version of it, just taking it beat for beat and putting it out there. But in the end, it was, again, a budget situation. And also, frankly, uh, you know, I'm blanking the name of the director. The, the, uh, oh, it was, wasn't it Jan de Bont? There we go. There yeah. we go. And it was just, it was one of these situations where, Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich had just come off of Independence Day, and the notion is that they've just delivered a, a film that's full of destruction and giant scale and what a Godzilla movie should be. And the studio decided, eh, let's take this away from John and give it to those guys. And they then basically reinvented the film to, you know, a giant iguana attacking New York. And yes. it just sort of you know, uh, but no, it's 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 definitely worth checking out. And Terry Rossio actually has a, a story credit on the new Godzilla versus Kong movie. There we go. There we go. 
So let's talk about how this ends. I mean, obviously, this is Hollywood of the 1990s, and it's a big budget effects film. So do they set up, you know, Gargoyles 2? Yes, they do. There's there's this weird subplot where Morgan has become kind of an art historian figure in mm-hmm. modern-day New York, and he's killed some of the other gargoyles, and he has mm-hmm. these stone hearts mm-hmm. that he's gotten out of them. And mm-hmm. at the very end of the movie, obviously, Goliath makes this ultimate sacrifice. Mm-hmm. He becomes one of the hearts, and he falls into the the river. And mm-hmm. at the end of the movie, it's this slow crane down into the water, Jim, mm-hmm. where we see all five of the gargoyles in their gargoyle form in stone under the water. You know, and it says something like, maybe one day they will be reunited and resurrected and all this. And it's like, uh, yeah, when the computer software can handle these amount <laughs> of creatures. <laughs> you just nailed what the issue was. When you read a screenplay like this and it's this much flying in the city and we're kind of in the same space with Sam Remy and, and the first Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. It was just, I know what you want to see in this movie. I just don't know if the technology is there to do this yet. And they thought enough of what Rick Baker did yeah. to have him do a maquette of this and to see, okay, can we do this as a full body suit? Can we have something that we can maybe do go motion puppetry with? By the way, to circle back to the auction that you were uh, just talking about, mm-hmm. for me, same thing. I paid through this catalog and it, it's all of this great stuff from films he actually worked on and then the what ifs. Right. Did you see the images in there? Of the aliens from Night Sky? Yeah, yeah. I'm obsessed with Night Sky. Yeah. I have the script. Wow. Tell you what, we'll trade baseball cards here. You get me a copy of your Gargoyle script, and I'll get you Night Sky, which, folks, by the way, if you don't know Night Sky, it was the film that Spielberg made, was going to make, before he decided to make E.T.? Yes. Where he turned the evil aliens that were attacking the people in the farmhouse into benign single alien, just like single gargoyle, right. to make the movie affordable. But yeah, oh, it's a killer script. And because I think because of the Night Sky E.T. connection that Rick Baker mm-hmm. had some percentage point or profit, oh. you know, or something. And he made oh, like, I hope so. yeah, he made I like a so. ridiculous amount of money because yeah, when you see the night sky aliens, you see how mm-hmm. they go from, there was one nice one and mm-hmm. that sort of went into making yep. ET, um, there which, which mm-hmm. he did not work on. That was Carlo Rambaldi who did mm-hmm. that. But, yep. and the, the story behind night sky, you know, the real life story mm-hmm. of the, Yes, you know the farmers yes. that were attacked mm-hmm. by these aliens is really interesting. You can, I think you can feel a lot of it in another Disney production, which is M Night Shyamalan's uh, Signs is very mm-hmm. Night Sky Z, right? Oh yeah, no, 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 absolutely. And who wrote the screenplay? John John Sales, I believe. There we go. Yeah. Yes, John. Sa- um, no, it's an amazing script. Uh, seriously, I will dig out a copy, and, and when somebody's looking the other way at Kinkos, I'll get you yes. a, a copy made. <laughs> I guess it's worth noting here that it wasn't just Gene Dem- Devlin and Jim Colf who were working on a Gargoyles movie. In fact, as recently of 2018, Jordan Peele supposedly pitched a Gargoyles movie to Disney. Yeah, I think that, well, what he said, I think, later was that he had a general meeting at Disney and they asked him mm-hmm. about properties and he kind of inquired about mm-hmm. Gargoyles, which I would love to see a, a Jordan Peele take on Gargoyles. Oh, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I mean, it seems like they. Ha- I think they they announced some other writers in in 2011. I mean, mm-hmm. you can do it now. Obviously, 
Um, and you can bring all five of the gargoyles to life. And I think it would mm-hmm. be really fun if you brought some of the voice talent back, right? Like mm-hmm. get Keith David oh, to come back. No, absolutely. We, we still live in a world where we can bring Edward Asner in. Yeah. You know, so do that. Yeah. I was just talking with my brother last night about how we now live in this world that thanks to subscription streaming services like Paramount Plus and uh, Disney Plus, you know, the old Hollywood business model where you have to create a movie that works for all four quadrants, that doesn't apply anymore. You know, that you can do these things like Star Wars The Mandalorian where you have this rabid fan base which you can, if you deliver a quality show, you can maybe bump out a bit because, you know, everybody's, you know, well, back while we could actually go to offices, everyone's standing around the water cooler talking about, you know, this amazing show. Right. But these franchise things, you know, the Star Wars, the, the Star Treks, and something like Gargoyles. I mean, Gargoyles, what did Bob Chapek say? That they were going to be on, on the, the heels of the success of Disney Plus? They were going to try to create a hundred new movies and TV series yeah. each year? Right. I heard that right, yes, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, I think it would be a perfect place for Gargoyles. I mean... Clearly, the fan base is there. Um, there was a really great interview last year with, I believe it was with Weissman on Polygon about the kind of phenomenon of the story. And he's planned all these spinoffs. And I guess you can mm-hmm. watch early episodes and see sort of where they were going to take it. But yeah, I mean, I don't think they should make this script, but they should make a script <laughs> and they should do it in live action. I think it would be really cool and fun but it was okay, it was a great little peek at like what they were thinking of you know and like what the limitations were but yeah i mean i i've always loved this property so it was a real thrill to kind of get to see it a little bit uh better i'm so glad you've been a new band and landed this you know, thanks for sharing and, yes and like i said let me go dig up my night sky because you're gonna love that one yes too. so Speaking of great stories that only a, a, a Drew Taylor can tell, what's going on with Light the Fuse, Light the Wick, and uh, uh, Light the Fuselage? Yeah, we have Light the yeah, Fuselage. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, you need merch of that. I know. All right? Well, so. we got, yeah, we got to do that for uh, Top Gun mm. Maverick. But mm-hmm. yeah, we're just uh, we're plowing ahead. We've got we're still in the middle of the John Wick miniseries, so you know we will return to our usual Mission Impossible schedule in the beginning mm-hmm. of May. So we've got a lot of great stuff. Come, come, keep coming back. We've got some awesome stuff. Yeah. Seriously, folks, if you love entertainment history, you have to listen to Light the Fuse, Light the Wick, and coming, Light the Fuselage. I love that name. On our side of the fence, we got Disney Dish with Len Testa. In fact, this week, we are trotting out uh, as a treat to all Disney Dish listeners. The show we did is a Bandcamp exclusive, the American Adventure Script from 1978. This is was a passion project for Len and Aaron, and that's supposed to drop on Wednesday this week. And then if you head over to Bandcamp on Friday, Len, Aaron, and myself will pop the hood on how this came together. And it's just a lot of work to try to replicate what a Disney theme park show sounds like. Well, it's it's very it's a very cool episode. I I listened to it a few weeks ago and I and the way that it, it is brought to life is really interesting. The only the only gripe I have, Jim, is that I wanted to be the uh, cast member saying the spiel at the beginning. I'm just saying, you know, that, that <laughs> if you'll notice, I am not in the show as well. You know, that, and mind you, you know, if if they were looking for Ben Franklin to be a nudgy white fat white guy, I mean, I could have done that. I mean, um, come on. but eh, 
you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Sure. Okay. Uh, let's see. Other speaking of Aaron Adams, uh, he's the gentleman I do the marvelous Disney podcast with. Uh, we also have Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse working on a new one of those. Tell you what, if you could do Drew and I a favor, if you get head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review, not only light the wick, light the fuse, and uh, fine tuning, uh, that would be incredibly helpful. Uh, if you really, really, really like uh, what you heard of today, if you want to hand over to Bandcamp and subscribe, uh, that's what helps make things like that American Adventure Show happen. And Drew, remind folks where they can find you. Uh, you can find me at Drew Tailored, like a tailored shirt. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's on Twitter and Instagram. So come check it out. Okay. And Nancy, again, you know, just, just comes at me with a two by four and it's like, tell them. So we're, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram at Jim Hill Media. And then on Facebook is Jim Hill Media News. And that's going to do it for this week. Thanks for listening, folks. And Drew and I will be back soon. <laughs>